we all have things of value, things that we cherish, whether they be valuable to others or not, right? Um, growing up, uh, I had this hat, this baseball cap. It was this uh, signature University of Florida baseball cap that my dad bought me when he was getting open heart surgery at Shands. And it was one of those moments where I think he came to grips with the reality that he might not make it out of this one, so I better get something for my son. You know, he didn't tell me that till later. I was, you know, just a dumb 15-year-old. I was like, oh, cool hat. Thanks, Dad. But I wore that thing every day to the point where the brim was stapled. I had sewn bits of it with fishing line, not because of the hat, but because of who gave it to me. And I heard bits and pieces of this story as I kind of got older and Dad would go through various trials and tribulations. And, like, the crazy guy before he was admitted to the hospital, walked up a hill we called Cardiac Hill, literally, to go buy this hat. I'm like, you could have died. He's like, yeah, well, I could have died anyway. So I wanted to get you something that means a lot. So I wore this hat. I lost it twice in high school, once in a lake, and then once in my buddy on the, on the road, and my friend found it. It came back to me twice. But I remember the third time I lost it was at college, and I lost it in my apartment. And because I was super organized. And I knew it was in there somewhere. I just couldn't find it. And for months, I would turn my apartment upside down trying to find this thing. And finally, when I moved out of that place, we picked up my old gross couch and it fell out of the box. And I, I, it was like I had found like a lost friend. And immediately, my dad and I knew what needed to happen. It needed to be enshrined forever. So he built me this elaborate hat box. And I have this thing to this day, to Rachel's chagrin. And every time we move, she's like, you still want that? I'm like, yes. Eventually, we'll have a house big enough where I can display it somewhere for all to see. And she just shakes her head and walks off. So I still have this hat. And every time I look at it, I'm not reminded of, of wearing, I'm reminded of my dad's love for me. That's why it's important. Have you ever lost something that important to you? Maybe it's a thing. It's something of value. Maybe it is valuable. Have you ever lost a person of great value? Maybe a friendship ended too soon. Maybe you lost a loved one to death. Maybe you had to move away for good reasons and you left a life and have to start a new one. All those emotions that are running through you right now lead you to a place of need. So today, I want you to lean into that reality of losing something, but I, I want you not to focus as the one who's lost the thing or the person, but the one who is the lost person. I want you to look through the eyes of a child that has gone astray and has realized that reality and doesn't know how mom or dad is going to respond when you come back. Because this is the story that Jesus tells to soften the hearts of the religious elite who look at his efforts of ministry and say, you're going too far, man. You're eating with those dirty people. You know you shouldn't do that. And he sits down and he says, let me tell you a story. 
about some lost things and the willingness of a father to chase them. So I'm going to read our scripture today. I want that to, to sit on the forefront of your mind. What would it be like to be the lost? What does it feel like when you realize that you are truly lost? And then realize that someone is chasing after you. So as we go through this, there's going to be uh, four points. The son's schemes, which sets up kind of the the tension, the the needed um, uh, tension that sets up the the beauty of the rescue. The father's patience, which is representative of God's willingness to endure our sin. The father's sacrifice, the willingness to pay a great cost to retrieve us, to rescue us. And then lastly, the father's gift, the willingness to reinstate those that he finds. So let's read our scripture. If you want to open up your, your electronic devices or if you have an old school paper Bible, that's fun. Or it'll be right up here on the screen. Um, so I'm going to read the first uh, three verses and then jump to the story of the prodigal. Luke 15, 1 through 3. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, Jesus, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus told them this parable. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to the father, Father, give me the share of my property that is coming to me. And he, the father, divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, and he took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose, and in that country he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and as he came to and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And the servant said to him, Your brother has come and your father has killed a fattened calf because he was received back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, 
Look, these many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I may celebrate with my friends. But when his son, when this son of yours came and devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So this is the third of three stories in one parable. Um, I'll summarize the first two just because uh, we've, we've preached on them before in this series and, and they, they lead up to this third story that is the climax of Jesus' point. The first story is about a lost sheep. And Jesus, you know, claps back at the Pharisees going, all right, you, you know, you have sheep if you're a shepherd and you lose one. Aren't you going to go after that one? You're going to leave the 99 in a safe place. You're going to go after that one. And then when you find it, you're going to do the hard work of getting it back. And then you're going to celebrate that you found this sheep. And then the second story is about a woman who had 10 silver coins and she loses one. And she turns her, her house upside down looking for this coin. And when she finds it, she celebrates with her friend. This is to to kind of prime the, the pumps of the, the Pharisees' minds to begin thinking like, okay, yeah, those are valuable. I'd do that. I'd do that. And he's saying, you know, the shepherd is representative of God and his willingness to chase us, even if it's hard. And then the, the woman is representative of God, and she's willing uh, to turn eternity upside down because you are so valuable. And then his third story is kind of like his, his uh, mental jab because he's going to use uh, the position of the patriarch, which is the highest member of the family, the, the, the leader of society. He's going to use the patriarch to paint a picture of God, but he's going to do it in such a way it's going gonna, it's gonna to really catch the attention of the Pharisees. So to understand the kind of the, the levity of foolishness these Pharisees are coming at Jesus with, we have to understand the schemes of the sons. Because Jesus is describing two groups of people here. The first son is rebellious. Goes to his father, I want, my, I want your stuff, dad, I want to go do my own thing. I don't need you to tell me what's up. So he goes off, lives his life. The second son follows the rules. So we have Jesus describing all of those tax collectors and sinners that are meeting him for lunch. And he's saying, what they're doing isn't right. Right? But then he's got a word for the Pharisees saying, but what you're doing isn't right either, guys. So let's get into it. Now, I've always heard this uh, proverb preached or teached as kind of a proverbial tale of a young man who, who wrongs his dad and gathers his stuff and goes off and lives a life of debauchery, and then he comes to his senses, and in the mud, in the, the mess of pig slop, he pulls himself up by his bootstraps, and he repents, and he goes home, and we cheer him on. It's kind of like a classic comeback story. We're like, yeah, we figured it out. But that would, that would be wrong if we're looking at it through the correct worldview. So looking at it that way, we're looking at it through the worldview of a Western American society. We love a comeback story. We love our bootstraps. Something out of nothing. That's not what Jesus was saying here. 
He was a Middle Eastern Jew. There was a culture in which was at play that we're not totally familiar with, at least I'm not. What he was doing here was setting up a story about a father. The father was the main character in his story. The sons were supporting roles. So looking at this correctly, we have to look at it through their lenses. We put our first century Middle Eastern Jewish shades on, and we get to see clearly that the, the patriarch would have been what drew the, their attention into seeing, wait, 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 you're telling this wrong, Jesus. So as the, the story unfolds, Jesus starts with this younger rebellious son, and he says the son comes to the dad, Dad, um, I want what's coming to me now so I can go off and live my life. Now that, again, through our world, you're like, okay, cool, independence, yeah. Get that guy out by 18, 19 years old. We've done our job. That's not how it worked here. So what we see here is a son coming to him and committing uh, cultural sins against not only his father, but his entire community. So to break that down, let's first start with his request, or his demand, rather. Now, he doesn't say, Dad, give me my inheritance. He says, give me what is coming to me. So he does some linguistic gymnastics here to avoid the word inheritance. And the reason why he does that is inheritance meant that he was going to take what the father gave him and assume all the responsibilities that the father had. So things like um, administering property and solving family quarrels, being the judge and the, the, the fair judge of the, the family, defending the family's honor, even if it meant dying in battle. Um, being responsible of growing the family's wealth. To care for those who couldn't care for themselves. To build a life in this clan that would better the clan. But no, he doesn't ask for inheritance. He asks for that which he wants. And he does this because he knows he wants to avoid all of that responsibility. He doesn't want to stick around. He doesn't want that. He's rebelling so that he can be his own Lord and Master. Now, the cultural sins here. Firstly, he's usurping his older brother. In a patriarchal society, there is a pecking order. The father, and then the older son, and then henceforth. Um, not that... The older son gets all the stuff and all the responsibility. There was other responsibilities, but that was the, the mandated order in which the society operated. And he just skipped in line. Nobody likes that. Second, his request or his demand for, the for his share of the family's stuff affects everybody. Not just the dad, not just the older brother, but it puts the entire village at risk, potentially. Land was security. Land was money. And when he took a third of that and spent and sold it and took it off, that is a third less security that the whole entire village had. But the worst part, it says, um, 
the implication of his demand. You see, in a patriarchal society still to this day, the father does not relinquish the authority and the, and the, the responsibilities and the stuff until he's decided to, and usually that's on his deathbed. And then he blesses his children and his family accordingly. So basically what this young man was doing in his rebellion was saying, Dad, I want you to die. I want you to hurry up because I need to get out of here because I want to do my own thing. And you might say, man, he's way out of line. We all have a tendency to rebel in some way. Every single one of us have that rebellion bone. Depends on what it is. I have, you know, pictures going through my mind right now. The things that I love to run and rebel with. So how do we know we're rebelling? Sometimes it's not that obvious. What I do is I, I look to the scriptures where God tells us stuff. People are like, oh man, I wish I could just hear from God. Well, you can, you know. Six, six volumes of God telling you stuff. But right in the beginning, he tells us the design for humanity. He said, I've created you to be mirrors of my image, to be ambassadors of a king, to love this world, to make it better, to fill it with a people that do the same, to, be, to have authority over and to take responsibility for so that this village, this kingdom of God grows and grows. And he's given us wonderful tools to do it with. Science, art, language, beauty, nature. All of those things are tools that God gave the first people to use to propagate the kingdom on earth. And we rebelled and messed it up and decided, no, we're going to do it our own way and thus sin happens. Rebellion and treason against God. So when we live our lives in such a way where we're like, I'm going to do my thing, God. You know, you're cool, and I thank you for all the stuff you give me, but I really want to do this over here, even though deep down you may realize that's, that's not going to build anything but my own little fiefdom. And this is exactly what every human has to deal with when it comes to the things that we love and put on that list above So let's get to the older son's scheme. Rule following. This is a harder one. Because we're all, we were, man, rules are made to be, you know, uh, guide society in the right direction. It, it protects, it helps. Yeah, that's correct. But there is such a way to follow a rule that leads you farther away from the whole intent of that rule. The Pharisees were prime examples of this action. So look at the older brother. He had to witness his younger brother spit in his dad's face, leave the family in bad straits, and he had to be the one that bore the extra weight of that. He had to step up even more. He had to be there when his little brother abandoned his family. He was in the fields every day. He was, he was tending to the, the animals. He was caring for the servants. He was making financial moves to better his family. 
all the while with this shadow of anger that his younger son got to go and do whatever he's doing. So he's, he's, well, we're not told this, but you can assume how he might feel, right? And we get a kind of a, a, a showing of all that emotion coming through when he walks up that fateful day and he hears a celebration. And being the second in line, and by the way, at this point, he owns all the stuff. You see, when the dad split up the inheritance, two-thirds, one-third, the older brother got his two-thirds that day. The father, while he's still alive, still had authority over it. But the older brother owns it all. It's in his name. So he walks up and he's like, hey, what's this party about? And this, this servant's like, well, your younger brother came home and your, your dad decided to throw a party because you know, he was lost. And now he's found. And, you know, we thought he might have been dead and now he's not. And we see the brother's true heart show. And he is enraged. He refuses to enter the party at his father's request, which may not sound, you may be like, yeah, you shouldn't go in that party. Refusing the patriarch's request is almost as bad as, as slapping him in the face. You're showing disrespect. The rebellion of the younger son and the rule following of the older son are, are the ways that sin manifests itself in every human's life. And given your personality, given your, your uh, experience in life, you may lean one way or the other more than often, but we all have a tendency to both. There are two sides to one coin. Looking in the face of God and saying, nah, I know better. It's just on one side, we are blatantly and openly and boldly saying, I'm going to do my own thing. On the other side, you are secretly using the tools of God to build your own kingdom outside of his. Neither of those is a good place to be. So we have to set up that tension. Sit in those seats. Put those sandals on your feet. Imagine yourself as both of these sons. You may feel the urge to be like, yeah, but they had reasons. Maybe they did. But now let's focus in on the main character. Let's see what the father does. So how does a good father respond to these sons? First, he's patient. The father's response seems unwise and foolish and maybe a bit irresponsible, but it's actually, he's very wise. He's loving and he's gracious. He's just playing his chess piece a bit early in the game so you don't notice. So as the father listens to his younger son request that he die and give him all the stuff, the Pharisees would have been boiling. And they would have known Culturally, what should have happened at that point? The father would have heard him out. And he would have been like, you know what? I hear you. But you're out of line. And you're out of this family. And he would have walked him down to the gate. And he would have ceremonially cut him loose from the family and said, 
See you later. My son is now dead. And he was shut the gate. That's what the Pharisees were like. This is what that kid deserves, that little punk. That's not what happened. The father was quiet. Not out of passivity, but out of strategy. Father patiently gave the son what he demanded. And you look at the older son. Doesn't come in the party. Servant comes back in. Hey, he's, he's out there and he seems mad. Father patiently gets out of his seat, the head of the table. Walks by every single person in the room. Quietly and goes to his son. This public display would have been shocking to everybody at that party. And just as shocking to the Pharisees that heard him do that. It's the gracious response of the father that's like the shock and awe that puts the Pharisees right where Jesus needs them to be. And then he moves on. Father is sacrificial. So in both interactions, the father suffers greatly. You may miss that because we focus in on the son sometimes too much, but he suffers In the first one, it's not necessarily the stuff that he's losing. It's the son that he's losing. And we know that he suffers throughout his son's absence because we're told that he's looking for him. And he sees him from a long way off. That means that every morning he got up and said, man, I hope my son comes back today. And he looks. And he gazes. It's like every morning I walked in my living room and said, man, I wish I could find my hat. I look around a little bit, but I got to go to class. But then he sees him one day. He sees the sun off in the horizon and he knows it. So he does something, again, countercultural. He, the word used means races. It's the same word used in like uh, Olympic style running. He races through the village down to his son before the son can even get inside the village. Now that makes sense. Like I have sons. They come home from kindergarten, daddy, like it's great. Like we run to each other, but this is different. And I've, I missed this up until this, this time of studying. I never connected these dots until I read a commentary. It was strategic because here's the reality. If you look at the village from the village's standpoint, they see the sun coming, the father's up here. The sun is inching ever closely and the village comes in, knows what he did. And they're like, you know what? This son needs to be punished. So a mob is forming. People are putting down whatever they're doing. And they're either going to see the spectacle or be a part of the spectacle. And give this son what for? For leaving them, for disrespecting their patriarch. The dad knows this. So his running through the village is taking the line of sight off of his son and placing it on himself. No one over the age of 25 in this culture ran anywhere in public. Not for, unless it's a very good reason. And the patriarch always walked purposefully everywhere they went. Also, this this man was probably older and hadn't run in decades. So imagine for yourself someone that isn't in that good of physical shape, running with a heavy robe on, 
through, you know, a couple sandy streets and sandals, and you, you got yourself a good making of a spectacle. And the village's attention would have been just all over him. Man, what's, what's he doing? Why is he run, What? How disgraceful. Like, we got this son over here, now we got the dad running through town? But if you think, at, think of it from the father's perspective, he's willingly absorbing the shame, the attention, and the reaction from the village so his son doesn't have to because he can afford it. Because he is the patriarch. So what does he do when he gets to him? You know, the son's concocted his, his plan, right? And it's ironic here. I, I love this part. First scheme, rebellion. That didn't work out for him. She's like, you know what? I'm going to go follow the rules. Maybe that'll work better for me. So he lays out the plan. Dad, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. And the dad doesn't respond. He says, servants, come over here. I need a robe, my best robe. Get the signet ring that represents authority in the family. Go get shoes put on his feet. My son doesn't walk around barefooted. He's part of the family. Hey, and kill the, you know, the, the Wagyu beef cow. We're going to have some really cool sliders. Go get a good keg of beer. We're going to do this right. And his son the whole time's like, Dad, Dad, no, wait, wait. Listen to me. I have sinned against you and against heaven. And the dad hears him, does not respond to him. Because nothing the son can do affects what the father is doing. The father is choosing to do this. It's not the son's apology that makes the father love him more. The father loves him because he loves him. So he chooses not to respond with words, but with action. Costly action. So what we see here is this sacrifice that made no sense in this time in history. And the Pharisees were probably going crazy. Ripping their robes, yelling. I mean, we're not told that, but I imagine they do it in other places. They are so livid that Jesus is portraying this patriarch in this way. It's disrespectful. So then Jesus makes it worse. See, this father throws this party, and then the oldest son comes, and everyone goes to the parties. A, because, man, who wouldn't want some Wagyu sliders? But B, dad said so. And the son refuses to leave. And once again, we find the father not sending his servant, not doing what the Pharisees knew he should have done, which is like, you know what? I'll deal with that brat later. Let him sit out there and starve. We'll have words tomorrow. He didn't. He quietly excuses himself, walks out of the room, goes to his son, says, please come in. Can't you see that your brother was dead and now he's alive? Don't you want to celebrate that? The entire village is celebrating. Despite what he's done, he's back. We have him again. This would have been extremely disrespectful, even more so than what the younger son did, because it was in front of the entire village. You see, the, the older son thought he was doing everything right by following all the rules. But when he saw his God attacked, the treasure of his heart attacked, that facade 
of rule following crumbled and he became the rebel that he never knew he was. And he did something even worse than the younger son. He denied his father's entry into the party. So let's look at the gifts. The gifts of the father meant something. So rewind a little bit back to what he gave the son. Gave him a robe, and not just clothing, because you can imagine a homeless guy that was feeding pigs, probably smelled bad, didn't have much on. The best robe represented um, entry into the family. He was a son once again. Sendit ring represented him having authority as that heir and that son once again. And the shoes meant he was a part of the family. Shoes were expensive. Servants couldn't afford shoes and didn't wear shoes. Family members did. And then the party. In the first two stories, when the sheep was found and the coin was found, said they threw parties. And Jesus connects it to the angels celebrating the soul that is found in heaven. So there'd be more celebrating in heaven when one lost person is found than of because of the many. And that's what's going on here. Jesus is pointing to that reality, how God feels when he rescues one more. He throws a party of great extravagance. But then we see the older brother in the missing climax. Won't you come in and celebrate? Your son was dead, or my son was dead, your brother was dead, and now he's alive. He's lost and he was found. And the story ends there. And at this point, Jesus is looking into the eyes of the Pharisees. And I can sense the, the want, say, won't you come to the party? Won't you come celebrate that these tax collectors and these prostitutes and these sinners, as you've called them, are coming to faith? Won't you celebrate that with us? But we don't know how the story ends. We don't know what those Pharisees did. But here's the reality. Jesus knew after that story that they knew the reason why he came. You see, the father in the beginning of the story is God looking at humanity as it spit in his face and said, we're not going to do it your way. We're going to eat this fruit and do it our way. Give us our stuff so we can start. And he endured that. And we see the father waiting impatiently probably, but wisely in his house looking for that son. God awaiting humanity to come back to him. And then the willingness of the father running through the village, absorbing all that shame as Jesus coming to earth, walking to the cross, absorbing all of the sin and shame of humanity so that he can tell us, welcome back to the family. Repent and believe and it's all yours. You see, the son didn't repent when he was sitting in the mud. He repented when he saw the extravagant, sacrificial love that the father had for him while he was ignoring his second scheme. It came to him and said, oh, 
The treasure isn't my dad's stuff. The treasure is my dad. And sonship is the residual blessing of being in relationship with my dad. That's what the tax collectors understood. They were at rock bottom. They were the lowest of the low. They were rich, but they had nothing. Prostitutes understood that. They had nothing. Jesus came and gave them entry into a kingdom they could never afford. But not the Pharisees. They clung to their rules. They rebelled in their rule following because they had something. They had the power over these lives. So my question to us all today, are we willing to relinquish the power? Are we willing to not follow rules for the sake of getting our own kingdom, but to love the Father that gives us um, sonship into a kingdom and thus obediently following his, the way he wants us to live out of gratitude? Are we willing to look at ourselves honestly and say, you know what, I, I do want God's stuff without God most of the time. And if you're willing to come that far with me today, I want to encourage you to repent of it. Turn from it. Like the sun being bombarded with love sees the Father sacrificially giving up all of his pride so that he can bestow honor on his son. Are we willing to give up a sinful want of building our own kingdom and let the Father lavish us with this sonship that invites us into the original plan of building his kingdom that will last forever. My prayer is that that's where you land. Maybe not today, but someday. And that you continue to share stories like this that come from scripture in your own voice to those that are failing to see that they are either rebelling and running or they are sitting in the Father's house following all the rules for the wrong reasons. Won't you come along with us and be a kingdom builder in the name of Jesus? Let's pray. God, we thank you for enduring our rebellion, running through the village absorbing the shame, embracing us as we make excuses and plot plans, and then covering us in kisses and lavishing us with your blessings. No other God claims this. No other God puts up with us. You alone show grace, mercy, and love in the face of rebellion and lies. Thank you. I pray for every single heart in this room, Christian or not, that, you would, that we would understand this, the immensity of this truth, that it would sit heavy on our minds and our hearts, that we might be changed by your love, not our doing and then take that love everywhere we go in whatever we are doing. We thank you for this story of a, a willing father and a son that sees truth through the hardship. And we pray for all those out there that are like the older son, that they would be broken 
so that Father can heal them and rebuild them even stronger through his power. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Message Podcast. Like us on your favorite podcast provider, follow our social media at Grove Church PSL, and check out our website, thegrovechurch.co.